Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that for the first episode dedicated to a trip, a journey away from Jerusalem, my guest is Dutan Alevi. Dutan uh, holds a PhD from Colombia and is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem. Dutan is uh, one of a few experts on late Ottoman and interwar Gaza. So today for our first trip, outside Jerusalem, we're going to essentially drive south uh, west, I guess. I'm not always very good with the cardinal directions, yes. but not that far away from Jerusalem anyway. And yeah. so, Dutan, welcome. Thank you very much, Alberto. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Indeed, southwest and the, the, the southern and the most west uh, you can get. From Jerusalem, you reach Gaza, the really last station before you leave Palestine. Uh, so finally, I got it right. Yeah. So today I have to uh, give away my first question about Jerusalem. Uh, but yeah. instead of that, Dutan, I want to ask you, how did you get to work on Gaza in the first place? Yeah, this is a question that I also ask myself uh, many times in order to kind of recall uh, what was my initial question? Because uh, since then, I guess it started like uh, uh, around a decade ago. Um, uh, I've been drawn into so many topics that uh, um, came out from the research on Gaza. So um, my initial interest, I uh, believe, started from dealing with World War I uh, in the Middle East writ large, but in Palestine particularly by trying to um, uncover a specific event was, which was um, the um, um, evacuation of Jaffa 
um, in uh, around um, March 1917. And um, that was a story that was well known within Zionist history because uh, most of its uh, victims of this Ottoman act of evacuation were, uh, were Jews. It was the Jewish population of Jaffa and Tel Aviv. Uh, but while kind of uh, digging into the documents of this event, I discovered that actually a quite larger event took place roughly at the same time, uh, a few weeks before, which was the evacuation of the entire population of uh, the city of Gaza. Um, at the time, uh, something between 35,000 to 40,000 people um, at the city. Uh, I, I was very surprised to find that this event was um, unstudied um, and that most, of most uh, historical sources could not tell where these people went, uh, where these people go, um, where they found shelter, uh, for the time of the, uh, until the end of the war. So I started with kind of trying to uh, follow their footsteps through, through uh, archival paper trail. Um, and I think, and, and this event um, drawn me to, to, uh, to look further into Gaza's history before World War I and then after. Um, and, and this is what I, I mean, this is what I, 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 I based my um, my doctoral research on uh, and we can talk further about this uh, but I think it started it started there that that was, that was the initial spark just to mention the fact that uh, um, the evacuation of Jaffa uh, was also part of my work and and I remember reading about Gaza which in fact I also use as an argument to say see it happened in Jaffa but actually it happened before in Gaza but uh, as you mentioned I and I too, I must admit that I didn't follow up. I just read these documents and I skipped the fact that uh, there had been an evacuation before. Uh, certainly the evacuation of Jaffa would deserve, uh, I guess, its own podcast because it's such a fascinating event. And also to discuss how it was portrayed at the time and then how it had been picked up later on, particularly by, I would say, traditional uh, Zionist historiography. And now when you look at the documents, you can actually... Um, you know, trace a different kind of, uh, of history of that particular historical event. But I want to go back to Gaza. Now, Gaza today is defined, and I would say rightly so, the largest open air uh, prison in the world, uh, given the fact that it's surrounded by uh, Israeli walls, fences, and troops, and is obviously also the uh, waterways are essentially blocked and people are confined within the borders of the Gaza Strip uh, itself. But back then, during the Ottoman times, Gaza was a different kind of city. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of Gaza, particularly under the Ottomans, because I think that today we are stuck with these images of Gaza today, and we forget that there was a different uh, kind of city, you know, where people lived obviously in a very different way than uh, from today. Yes, indeed. Um... Today's reality in the Gaza Strip, arguably the most securitized um, enclave uh, in an open uh, air prison uh, uh, in the world, that was my 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 kind of second trajectory to start 
uh, digging into Gaza's past. Uh, I, I'm, I grew up uh, in Israel into a period where Gaza started to be disconnected from, from uh, Israel and the world. So this is a process that uh, started rolling from the uh, from first Intifada um, through the through Oslo with an important uh, benchmark in the uh, Israeli disengagement from Gaza and then the rise of Hamas to power uh, and the Israeli uh, blockade on the Gaza Strip uh, and the routine war since then. So um, I grew up with the sense of this place being uh, um, in another world. Uh, and indeed, when I started looking into the history, I discovered a totally different place that is maybe the complete opposite. It is well connected to its surroundings, its maritime, desert, uh, and, and, and agricultural surroundings, uh, with a very firm connections between the city and its hinterland, between the city and trading ships uh, traveling in the Mediterranean, and with uh, nomad um, um, tribal confederacies uh, roaming Sinai Desert uh, into the southern Palestine Desert, into Arabia. Um, and this um, belongness of Gaza to its uh, wider uh, region uh, and the, the city's connectivity uh, during the late Ottoman period was something that was totally um, the mirror picture of what, I, uh, what I've experienced from the Gaza Strip of, of, of today uh, as this um, place uh, remote from 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 the from the eye from the mind, which is only at least for me as a as a young Israeli growing up in in uh, 1990s Israel was a place that uh, can be only reached uh, through through um, through media categorized in a very specific way, um, and and this fascinated me both the question of what was there before the Gaza Strip, but also, and I think not less importantly, uh, the question of how the development of this region, of the Gaza region, during the late Ottoman period into the Mandate period, um, enabled or created the terms for the later creation of the Gaza Strip. Um, so if we're talking specifically about um, late Ottoman Gaza, we're talking about a city that is roughly from the 1840s, from the Ottoman reconquest of Palestine is starting to go um, through a uh, gradual change from a city that served mostly the paths moving through the, the desert, either going from, um, from Egypt through, um, through uh, the middle passage of Sinai, uh, to the city of Aqaba and roads that are traveling uh, in Transjordan and Gaza is located right at the middle to uh, facilitate both of these, both of these roads. Um, Gaza is starting to go through a change which uh, it directs its attention more and more to the sea and to maritime trade and start to leave those, um, those uh, ground roads um, and the connection and the connection of, of these tribal confederacies around Gaza to these tribal tribal um, to these um, routes running from uh, Syria and from uh, and from uh, Egypt into the second half of the 19th century, 
the increasing um, activity of maritime trade in the, in the Mediterranean um, would make, uh, would tie the city of Gaza into its hinterland uh, and the uh, tribes around Gaza would turn more and more under uh, Ottoman pressure to be agriculturalists, uh, supplying Gaza with the cash crop, um, mostly grains and even particularly uh, barley. And uh, Gaza would start as a city and the, and the merchant uh, community of Gaza would start um, trading in, with, uh, in these grains and mostly in barley with Europe. Um, so by and large, what we're seeing uh, during the late Ottoman period is a city that is, if I, if I use the phrasing of uh, Johan Busso in his book, um, Hamidian Palestine, a city that is moving from being a port on the, on the shores of the desert to being a port on the shores of the sea. So this is kind of the, 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 the broad process looking from a bird's eye view. Would you say Gaza was a cosmopolitan city, similar to Jaffa and Jerusalem, or was still much more homogeneous in terms of population? We usually think of, of Gaza as, uh, as more homogeneous, but um, the comparison to Jaffa and Jerusalem, I think, um, uh, should be taken, with, the, should be taken with, the, with, with a pinch of salt, uh, because when Gaza starts its journey of change, um, let's say from, from, from the mid-19th century, Jaffa is also a very small city and not as cosmopolitan as we want to imagine it or as it would develop to be uh, soon enough. And also, and also Jerusalem has not yet uh, experienced uh, the uh, onslaught of, uh, of um, European missionaries and so I mean from the 1840s onwards, uh, but not before. But, but the character of, of Gaza may be, um, uh, I wouldn't say in con contrary to other cities, but what makes Gaza unique in this sense, uh, it's, is this very um, uh, close ties with populations which comes from different climatic um, environments or terrains. So you would find in Gaza uh, in the 19th century, um, you'd find important presence and political centrality of, of, um, of tribal shapes, for instance. And you would find ties, very close ties and important ties between the elite families of Gaza and, uh, and tribal leaders. And you would also uh, find um, some, something of an Egyptian element in Gaza. I'm, I, I'm not sure it is as pronounced uh, as um, some of the literature uh, claim it to be, uh, but nonetheless, Gaza was the entrance point into Egypt for anyone coming from, from the south and the entry point to greater Syria from, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, from the north and the entry point to anyone coming to greater Syria from, from the south. And there were families of, um, and, and merchants of uh, Egyptian origin and you can find it in, 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 fe in festivals celebrated in Gaza, also in, um, on, in, in the Gazan dialect. Um, and, and other cultural traits. Um, the process of 
coastal cities like uh, Jaffa, and obviously the most uh, the most telling example is Beirut. The turning of these cities to have a kind of cosmopolitan character happened at the same time that Gaza is losing its centrality as 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 an important city in the path between the the uh, agricultural land, the settled land, and and uh, the desert, um, because while we're while uh, we're describing Gaza as a city that acquire, acquires more and more a uh, role as a port city or a coastal city, this in fact was not. Uh, um, when we look at this process from from its results, this in fact was not was not a. Um, we cannot say positive in history, but this is this was not something that uh, developed Gaza into being a, a actual bustling cosmopolitan uh, port city, but it uh, established Gaza as a, as a kind of a maritime station that steamships that would move on the path from Alexandria to Beirut uh, and would dock in small ports on the way. Uh, like uh, move through Jaffa uh, and through other places, uh, they would they would travel through Gaza, but they would never dock in indeed on the on the Gazan coast, but far away, uh, uh, far off in the in, in like two miles into the water because Gaza's uh, uh, seashore is shallow and there is a continental shelf going deep into the water, so steamships cannot actually approach the coast. Um, and at the same time, um, Gaza was central within its um, environmental context of connecting Sinai, uh, Greater Syria, and Arabia. And once it moves to be used only as this maritime gate, um, uh, it, it in effect loses much of its uh, raison d'etre of being located where it is on the edge of the desert. So most of these tribes are no longer roaming these wide areas, but they are getting closer and closer into Gaza and also to Beersheba. And Gaza becomes much more limited in its um, economic abilities and it, in its political influence uh, in the region. So we have this process whereby Gaza is uh, integrating into this system of maritime cities, uh, but while other cities would become more cosmopolitan, more international, Gaza would actually be, would, would uh, uh, go through this process of local localization, would be much more connected to its very immediate hinterland. Uh, rather than uh, to the to the to the larger region ranging from 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 Greater Syria to to Hijaz and to and to Sinai. I was wondering about the population. Um, while Gaza might not have been so cosmopolitan as other places, but I was wondering to what extent uh, um, non-Muslim communities, in fact, were living in, in Gaza uh, city. So you know about Jews and Christians. And perhaps even um, uh, Europeans. So there, a, the, uh, uh, there is a um, an historic uh, Christian community, uh, Orthodox community in in, in Gaza. Um, they were always a minority, nevertheless uh, a quite a protected minority. 
Church Missionary Society established uh, a foothold in Gaza. If I'm not mistaken, their first appearance was in the late uh, 1870s. Uh, but then uh, Gaza became uh, one of the main centers of, church, of, of the Anglican Church Missionary Society in Palestine. Uh, in fact, um, the society established a uh, very significant hospital in Gaza. Nevertheless, their um, proselytization efforts were not, uh, were not very successful. Um, in terms of Jews, so this is an interesting story. Whoever deals with the history of of, um, of Jewish diaspora before modernity would say uh, that there was always something of a Jewish presence in Gaza. Uh, but in the 19th century, it seems that uh, if there was anything, it was, um, uh, it, it, was it, it, it was very uh, minor. Um, but what you see is a renewed Jewish community uh, starting to settle in Gaza in the 1880s. So roughly in parallel to the arrival of, um, of Zionist Jews to other places, actually there was a small group um, from, of, of that uh, affiliated with the Bilu um, uh, immigrants that arrived Gaza, but they left Gaza very fast. But uh, the, the uh, community that uh, establishes itself there is a community of Maghrebi Jews, mostly came from Jerusalem within the context of looking for new financial um, options in other places. Uh, so as part of the defortification of Jerusalem and the uh, plight of communities outside of the walls, um, some saw the opportunities of taking part in the maritime trade that was developing in Gaza, um, saw this as, as, an, as, as, um, as a promising opportunity. Uh, and from the 1880s, we would find the Sephardi community in Gaza. Um, and this community was there uh, until the First World War, um, reaching to the amount of some 200 people, I guess, uh, when it was the biggest. Arabic-speaking community uh, that had uh, a very good relations with uh, the Muslim majority and some ambivalent connections or relations uh, with Zionist institutions. Um, in fact, this community of Sephardi Jews uh, were, was trading um, with, uh, with the Zionists in information about land purchases, purchase and also in, um, in, in mediation to local Arab landlords. In return, they, they got uh, financial support and also some religious services like, uh, like a shochet, a ritual slaughterer um, and, uh, and, and the rabbi. Um, and the Zionists did uh, serious efforts to Zionize them uh, to draw them into Zionism, but uh, these were not very su successful. Uh, in fact, most of the Zionist teachers that was, were sent to Gaza uh, in order to educate um, the, uh, the youth of this, uh, of, of this community um, mostly uh, um, ran away in a few months, uh, within a few months uh, um, 
because of the uh, of the uh, of, of the bad experience that they had there, and um, and and the community uh, in fact vanished uh, when World War One started. Mostly immigrated to Alexandria, um, and the very last were evacuated with the rest of the of the uh, city in in March uh, 1917. After the after the war, there was uh, a a small Zionist community settled in Gaza um, and started to establish itself and and attract more settlers to move into Gaza. Uh, but at the time. Uh, Gaza was ruined um, uh, because of the war. We can talk about it later. Um, and non -many, many settlers wanted to wanted to join. And Zionist institutions, the, the Zionist executive, uh, was not very keen uh, to invest in 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 the far-fetched city of mostly Arab uh, Arab Muslim uh, population. Um, and this community was struggling uh, for around two decades. And in 1929, um, um, it, it ran away from Gaza in its entirety. And uh, this community was never really re-established. I was wondering about uh, the position of Gaza, not geographically speaking, obviously, in uh, late Ottoman Palestine in terms of uh, political relations, administration, uh, how did the Ottomans uh, placed uh, Gaza in, in, in basically in, in the map of uh, of Palestine? And also, um, given the fact that you wrote an article about uh, a, a consular agent, Alexander uh, Ksevich, uh, probably I'm going to butcher the uh, um, pronunciation <laughs> here, uh, before World War I, which was published on Jerusalem Quarterly number 81. I was wondering also if you can tell us uh, something about these um, kind of diplomatic relations that developed in the city of Gaza. Yes, of course. Um, in terms of uh, locating Gaza on the map, so under the Ottomans, Gaza was a subdistrict capital within the uh, within the um, independent Sanjak or Mutasarflik of of Jerusalem. Uh, so there was so Kaimakam. Uh, uh, set in Gaza um, and uh, was uh, subordinate to the Mutasarif of Jerusalem. Uh, but that was, I mean, Gaza was a sub-district uh, for, for, I mean, until the First World War um, when military administration, Ottoman military administration took over. Um, but the fact that it had the same title throughout this period does not mean that it was um, was equally uh, uh, central, uh, politically central um, uh, throughout the throughout the period, because um, as the Ottomans are um, establishing their sovereignty deeper and deeper into the into southern Palestine, into the desert and the tribal territories, um, they would establish substitutes uh, for Gaza. Uh, and the most important one is, of course, Beersheba. Uh, and Beersheba is established alongside a new subdistrict that is called the subdistrict of Beersheba, uh, initially in uh, 1889, and then in 1900, um, the city itself is being established as the, as the um, 
subdistrict uh, capital. And what the Ottomans would do is to take the territory that was once that was once belonged to Gaza um, and path it to the Be'er Sheva Kaimakam, and uh, the Gaza subdistrict would actually diminish in size, uh, and uh, the, the Gaza Kaimakam would no longer be the one responsible for, tri for tribal affairs. Um, while this is being done uh, politically and administratively, this does not mean that the tribes are uh, officially disconnected from Gaza. On the contrary, in fact, uh, when Gaza, when Be'er Sheva is established, basically this would epitomize the long-standing process of settling the tribes, making them sedentary. Um, and when when and Be'er Sheva being established as a center for um, settled tribes, that means that these tribes would also move from. Um, from pastoral economy to rely mostly on agriculture. Uh, and when relying on agriculture, it means that they produce cash crops and cash crops are being sold in the Gaza market. Uh, so while administratively the, the Ottomans are playing with who's responsible for what territory and to what kind type of population, economically or financially, um, the Gaza, the, the, um, the, the tribes are, are still connected and getting more and more attached to, to the city of Gaza as the gate outwards in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, finance. About, uh, regarding Knesevich, uh, Anton Alexander Knesevich, so he's really a fascinating figure, um, um, a son uh, of, of an Austrian family. Uh, his father um, was um, brought uh, to the Ottoman Empire as a doctor uh, to serve on a medical mission, maybe uh, as part of the Ottoman 1840s quarantine system to Tripoli, to, to, to Tripoli Sham, to, to Tripoli in, in, in today's Lebanon, um, and was married there um, to, to a woman named Jdaisel. Um, her name was if I'm not mistaken, Jdaizalzad, uh, but maybe I am. So don't catch me on this. Uh, the Knezovich father, his name is Andrei, Andrei Knezovich. Anton was probably born in Tripoli, but then the city moved to Gaza. Uh, again, they might have moved to Gaza uh, as well as, 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 as part of the father's service on, on, the, uh, on the quarantine system because um, at, in the 1850s, the Ottomans established two quarantines in southern Palestine on the southern edge of Palestine, which means in Gaza and in Hebron, the two southernmost cities before um, you move into the desert, one on the mountain and the other on the plains, Gaza and Hebron, which are a, a twin cities of sort. Um, um, and from early age, Anton Knesevich uh, worked uh, for the CMS, uh, for the Church Missionary Society. Uh, he, he worked at that dispensary. And later on, um, he worked as an agent of Lloyd's, of the, of the um, uh, shipping company, shipping insurance company. Um, and, uh, and being uh, well acquainted with the shipping system and the trade system of Gaza, 
uh, is being offered to the uh, British consul in Jerusalem to serve as a consular agent uh, when British interests uh, in the uh, barley trade in Gaza got stronger and stronger. Um, so uh, after a few years of, 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 of back and forth, he was finally nominated as a British consular agent in 1906, right on time to facilitate the British with uh, intelligence uh, when the 1906 uh, Aqaba crisis uh, broke out. And indeed, without getting too much into the details of the Aqaba crisis, that was a kind of a uh, preliminary event to World War I. The British and the Ottomans are clashing uh, around the interests in, in the, in the um, uh, um, on, on the shores of the Red Sea, uh, right at the passage between Sinai and Arabia. Um, and uh, Knesevich, sitting in the city which is the closest to this region uh, and can uh, spot the Ottoman army um, arranging uh, uh, and gathering uh, in, the, in the vicinity of Gaza. Uh, so he's vital for uh, for, for, for the British, um, uh, for, for British intelligence, and indeed he supplies a lot of it, uh, and he would serve at the same purpose later on in the, in the Tripoli War uh, in 1911, um, when uh, Italy invades uh, what is today Libya, and, and the Ottoman army would um, try to assist uh, the, uh, its, uh, its forces in, in, on the shores of Libya, and to do so, he would have to travel from Syria through Palestine and then move through Sinai. Um, there was a lot of problems there because the British declared Egypt as a neutral territory, so, um, they, uh, so the British blocked the 1906 border, but Knesevich was there on the border in order to report and give intelligence about what's going on with the Ottomans. So he was very useful for the British. And at the, at the same time, he did all sorts of things that got the British very mad, not only the British, for instance, uh, mediating and brokering lands uh, for Zionist settlers, uh, sometimes on Sinai land, uh, which was of course under, under British authority, um, what uh, almost caused the British to um, uh, throw him away. Uh, eventually, um, the Ottomans, when, when World War I uh, uh, starts, uh, being a, on this uh, liminal position of being an Austrian national, so that means an, an ally of the Ottomans, but at the same time, a British consular agent, the Ottomans does not know, don't, the Ottomans don't know exactly what to do with him, and they send him uh, to Damascus, uh, and he spends part of the war there, um, but then obviously with the establishment of the British mandate, um, uh, his, his uh, role as a consular agent is no longer needed. Uh, this is the story of, of, of Alexander Knezevich. He's a very colorful figure. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about... 
work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It sounds very colorful, and it reminds me that when the Ottomans didn't like someone, they sent them to Damascus in the best-case scenario, like they <laughs> did with many others, like... Uh, Missim Malul, Albert Antebi, and uh, uh, the patriarch of a Catholic and Latin church, and, uh, and so forth. So I, I guess at some point in Damascus, there must have been a circle of exiled, perhaps a topic uh, to write about uh, another day. Uh, but it's fascinating because obviously Damascus really became the center of all of these exiled people from Palestine. And I guess one wonders whether they had a chance to meet or they were under control by Ottoman authorities. Obviously, here we are talking about uh, World War I and uh, the role of Gaza um, in the conflict. So as a, as a border city, essentially, between uh, uh, British-controlled Egypt and uh, the Ottoman forces. So what happened to Gaza during the war? If we, we've drawn the process by which Gaza is becoming a kind of a economic periphery, uh, in to the world market, but also within Palestine. So at the same, the, what happens at the same time is that um, the Gaza borderland, again, this malleable region that connects greater Syria and Sinai and Hijaz, which Gaza was a part of, together with Aqaba, together with Suez. So um, this entire borderland is being uh, torn apart um, because the routes that were taking north to north to south and, and and west to east are no longer relevant because of maritime trade. The tribes are being settled and they now do agriculture. Um, and within these conditions, and as the British are taking over Egypt and the Ottomans are moving farther and farther into southern Palestine. Um, 
both both are clashing uh, in this contact zone and basically um, dividing this borderland between them in 1906. So this is the border between the Ottoman Empire and um, British ruled Egypt. Uh, and exactly on this border, um, earlier I, I said preliminary event to World War I, uh, because um, this, this border would be the place where the two powers would clash once again uh, in 1917. So obviously it starts with, um, with the Ottoman attack on the Suez Canal, but then the Ottomans uh, would, uh, uh, led by Kess uh, von Kessenstein and Jamal Pasha, but then the Ottomans would withdraw for the rest of 1915 and 1916. And eventually the line that the, the line of defense that the Ottomans would establish uh, uh, for the, for, for basically for the entire greater Syria would be the line between Gaza and Beersheba, the exact line where you move from the desert into the, into the uh, settled um, uh, land. The, the British would arrive to this line around January 1917, and um, and the city that is uh, the city that is basically where the Ottoman army was arranging was was the city of Gaza. Again, since 1906, that would be the linchpin to Egypt, but also the last point uh, where the Ottomans would try to to prevent the British from from passing. Um, the, the the British uh, attacked uh, Gaza three times. Um, the first uh, battle was in March, and the second was in April 1917. Um, uh, within this uh, context, Jamal Pasha decided the evacuation of of uh, of uh, um, the city of Gaza uh, before the first uh, uh, battle in in March. Uh, but in these in in these two events. The Ottomans prevailed. The Ottoman defenders uh, prevailed, uh, and they did, did not let the British pass. But then um, both armies would move into um, trench war from the worst kind, from the kind that we know of the, uh, in the Western Front, um, and basically would let artillery do the job. Uh, and these are long months that the British officers would uh, uh, bombard Gaza. Um, where the Ottoman army had entrenched itself. Um, and within bombardments, between bombardments and the Ottoman efforts for fortification, the city is basically being destroyed. I mean, the physical, the very physical infrastructure, the, uh, the houses themselves, the streets uh, are being toppled and destroyed and disassembled um, for the Ottoman fortification. Um, and uh, the concluding uh, battle uh, in the end of October 1917, when the British would make their uh, famous uh, detour through Beersheba and then uh, and, and would break the line, the Ottoman defense line in Beersheba, and then would just move to uh, just to 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 mark a V on on Gaza. Basically, would this entire maneuver left uh, Gaza totally destroyed. Um, the people in Gaza, the people of Gaza, uh, uh, I let me just remind, are in exile. There are uh, they they found shelter in different places, uh, going as far as Aleppo, uh, but most of them 
in, in Jaffa, in Jerusalem, in Northern Palestine, in the villages around. Uh, and they would start little by little to go back to their city and find it in total ruins. Um, and in fact, um, most of the people of the pre-war period uh, would just decide not to go back. So if before the war, uh, we had around 40,000 people in Gaza, in the first uh, British census in 1922, uh, there were only uh, 17,000 people, so less, less than a half. And this number persists also uh, until the census of 1931. Um, so it is only in the latter half of the 1930s that the city would start gaining back its original population. And it would be, it would be around the, the, the end of the mandate period uh, that the city would go back to numbers which are uh, above 40,000 people uh, in terms of within the, within the uh, uh, urban sphere uh, of Gaza. So the effect of wartime destruction was crucial for the development of Gaza in the post-war years. And partially, if we try to understand where was Gaza during the crucial period of the development of Palestinian national, uh, Palestinian national, uh, the, 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 the making of, of, of Palestinian national identity or the development of Palestinian national awareness, where was it uh, during the, the development of the Zionist-Palestinian Zionist conflict in the Mandate period, where Gaza wasn't really there. It wasn't really there because it was still recovering from World War I. And in this sense, World War I had turned out to be much longer in Gaza than in other places, not only in Palestine, but in the Middle East uh, more generally. This reminds me the studies done particularly on the European front by scholars obviously like Jay Winter, who argue that the war doesn't end in 1918, but in many locations and for many people ends even a decade later, or it might even ended up after World War II because of the, the kind of a concept, the long-term consequences of the war. And this also reminded me of the population of Jaffa on the other hand, returned rather quickly to their homes after the British took over, but it's also true that the city was not heavily bombarded or destroyed in the same way as Gaza, which was effectively a front uh, city, very similar to other uh, European towns that found themselves essentially close to the trenches. And so they suffered the kind of destruction. Before I ask you the question about uh, interwar Gaza, I want to ask you about sources how one does write the history of Gaza, particularly in the late Ottoman era and the early 20th century? Where are the sources? Uh, what is the material available? And what are the issues of accessibility to that material? So obviously being uh, an Israeli writing about Gaza, the question of accessibility of sources is, uh, was on my mind from the first step. And, um, a, a, a sort of methodological decision that I had to make in a very early stage uh, was that um, I, I, I would not be able to supply a, a sort of eyewitness uh, account 
um, uh, or, or, uh, or, 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 or something that re relates to my own experience of, of, of how the, the urban space and the society uh, is, 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 is projecting um, uh, um, is, is uh, the history of this place is, is being projected upon the contemporary uh, contemporary society. And in this regard, I treat Gaza um, the same way that people would maybe treat archeological sites. I mean, this is not something that you can actually recover, uh, but you would have to use your very much your imagination. Um, as far as I know, there weren't from, I mean, research that had been done on Gaza in recent years hasn't used uh, a specific archive um, that is held today in Gaza that I, that, I, that I miss or that I don't have access to. Obviously, if I could uh, visit um, local collections, uh, documents held in, in households in Gaza, obviously I would benefit a lot. Uh, but in terms of official collections or archives, I think there's um, there's nothing that I think that that scholars of, of my generation have utilized that is prevented from uh, from me. So what I uh, so so the places where I, I I did went to find were mostly the Ottoman archive. Uh, the Ottoman archive supplies a lot of information about. Uh, the administrative and uh, financial arrangements uh, within the city, um, the British archives and various uh, um, Israeli uh, archives, including the state, uh, the Israeli state archive, which holds most of the materials from from the from the British mandate, um, and the, alongside chronicles and memoirs. Uh, and a very important source, which is a kind of encyclopedia uh, of Gaza, a kind of a, a combination of a gazetteer uh, and the biographical dictionary and, uh, and the history book and whatever you like that uh, uh, of four volumes, it's called Ithaf el uh, presenting the notables with the history of Gaza or something like this, or by uh, Sheikh Osman Mustafa Ataba, uh, which is, which is a, uh, which is a this compilation from from the 19 uh, completed in in the 1940s, but it 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 acts as a primary source for for all uh, means and purposes. Um, uh, I also used some um, WACF registers um, and uh, and court records, um, the, uh, especially where I try to reconstruct. Uh, the landscape of ruins within Gaza, because a lot of wartime ruins also had uh, connections to uh, the same buildings as waqf assets uh, or as things that are being bought and sold uh, within within court records. Um, um, so, 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 so th these were mostly my my uh, let's say uh, ordinary sources and uh, for for. Reconstructing what's going on in the war, I used a lot of photographs uh, and also paintings um, that are, are giving giving some uh, idea of how the city looked like, and or maybe more precisely how people wanted it to look uh, or to represent it. 
I guess we need to wait for the uh, opening of the uh, Ottoman records uh, related to the fourth army and Jamal Pasha records uh, <laughs> that are held in Istanbul and no one knows when they will be available to reconstruct the wartime period and also better times to perhaps find the personal records essentially to get uh, the Wasif Juaria and Isan Turjman that told us so much about wartime Jerusalem but also you know someone uh, similar that will tell us about Gaza uh, in the period of World War One. Yeah, that would be a treasure. But for the uh, for the Ottoman army records, we would have to wait long. I'm not sure that uh, in our academic lifetime. I I must concur that probably it's not going to be even our relatively young generation. <laughs> it would be another one. Yeah. I have one more question about Gaza, and this is absolutely is the follow up. Uh, what happened uh, during uh, the interwar periods? How did Gaza uh, sort of redevelop? And you already mentioned the trauma of the war, the fact that obviously there's so much destruction that uh, it took uh, decades, in fact, to bring back uh, people. But how did the British approach the city of Gaza? Did they invest money or was it uh, left uh, to uh, basically its own devices? Um, so it's bo bo both both answers are correct. They the British had a plan. No, they didn't invest money, but they invest effort. They had a plan. At the same time, they left it for its own devices. Um, uh, basically, the first uh, to approach um, uh, the misery of Gaza after World War One was was um, the first high, high Commissioner Herbert Samuel, um, who together with uh, several of the city notables um, and the British officials conceived a plan, a reconstruction plan, uh, which was very detailed. Basically what uh, the British wanted to do is to take the part of land which divided, uh, which separated Gaza from the seashore that was a few kilometers of uh, sand dunes. Um, and take this uh, area, which was uh, state-owned land uh, under the category of Mahlul, um, and parcelize it and sell it in an auction. And from the money gained, they wanted to um, establish a... Uh, and an, an accountant would give loans to people who want to reconstruct their houses within the destroyed city. So a very uh, convoluted way of basically making, uh, start of kicking off Gaza's recovery with its own devices. So you take this state land and then you give it, uh, you sell it to people in order to start engineering something of the construction on the sand dunes, but at the same time you take this money and you give it out as a loan for people who this, their houses were destroyed and then you try to recover the city while uh, establishing the new part or, or kind of a coastal suburb of Gaza um, uh, on uh, closer to the, to the seashore. Obviously, as you may uh, uh, hear, um, that was too complex of a plane uh, to be materialized. And it, it did, uh, it mostly failed. Um, and uh, it, it 
until the, the mid uh, 1930s, it remained only uh, on the paper. Um, but what it did do, uh, it prevented other reconstruction mechanisms from, from emerging because there was always this um, uh, horizon that the British are about to do something. And they already have plans about what to do with the sandy lands, for instance. So while they are doing this, nothing else can happen. And since they are always in the process of constructing this uh, uh, account for loans, so people don't want to invest their own money because they know they can get cheaper money by the government. So by the, until the, 18, the 1930s, you would find that with this expectation to what the British are basically planning but never comes to life, uh, the city still remains stuck in its own, uh, in, in, in its, in its uh, uh, post-war situation. And as we said earlier, many of the population is basically looking at all these developments from afar, from Jaffa, from other places. Um, uh, uh, so until the, the 1930s, um, this vision of a new city on the sand combined with other projects that the British has, for instance, they had, for instance, uh, of, of, of arresting the sand dunes from drifting by planting forests. That was not only a project in Gaza, uh, but Gaza was far away enough in order for the British to take Gaza as an experiment for what happens when you, when you plant trees species coming from Australia in the coasts of Palestine. Uh, and this project would intervene within the project of building uh, this coastal suburb. For, so ev everything in the region of Gaza is stuck within British bureaucracy uh, in terms of uh, creating a new city. And at the same time, there is a very heavy involvement within the old city of Gaza, the destroyed city of the British Antiquities Department. This is something that you and I share, uh, this uh, right interest in all these um, conservation projects. So Gaza being, so Jerusalem is one case being uh, sacred um, and mysterious and ancient. Um, Gaza has another specific, uh, another specificity um, for drawing uh, conservationists, the fact of it being ruined. And ruins is always something that uh, ignite the imagination of archeologists and, uh, and, and conservationist architects. And when um, the, um, and when, when, the, when the people at the Department of Antiquities sees Gaza, they say, okay, so this is the best taste, test case for what we can do with preservation. It's all in ruins now. So we can just freeze everything, decide what we want to preserve and how. We can also expose all the uh, ancient layers of these buildings because everything is in ruin, everything is neglected and abandoned. So the, the historic buildings of Gaza, mostly the ones that are related or at least interpreted as, as, as relating to the uh, Mamluk period, they are all being targeted by the British Department of Antiquities uh, to be preserved. So in part of the, part of the urban uh, sphere within Gaza is being 
frozen by the Department of Antiquities. So the locals would not be able to recover it the way they want and to uh, make it useful again, because it is all contingent upon what the Department of Antiquity uh, would, uh, uh, would, would, would want to uh, make Gaza of, or how they, they want to create Gaza as this, in this neo-Mamluk uh, uh, style. So pretty much what the committee does in uh, Cairo, but only a few decades back, would happen in small scale within, within the old city of Gaza itself, which also would interfere within the spontaneous uh, and the more natural way that people would, would try to recover uh, their own destroyed assets. So it would only be post the Great Palestinian Revolt and towards the Second World War um, that the British would, would loosen their grip a little bit from these lavish plans and would let the area of Gaza to, to kind of gain momentum with, with uh, independent recovery. And this would also, of course, that would, would, would receive uh, a, a serious boost with, with, the, um, uh, with, with the money that enters the region with, with the Second World War. This was Dotana Levy, who took us to uh, the first trip outside Jerusalem. Dotana is currently a postdoctoral research at the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem, and has published a large number of articles dedicated to uh, late Ottoman Gaza and the interwar Gaza. So, and hopefully we will read soon uh, a book dedicated to the history of Gaza in this period of time. Have you seen that? Dotan, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.